fullback belly. Three tight ends, including Haydner. Kuhn is the fullback with the first and goal. Kuhn gets the ball. Pile Wolfpack, we are thrilled to welcome on a new guest to the Fantasy Fullback Dive today, and that's Brody Miller, at Brody A. Miller on Twitter. He covers LSU football for The Athletic, which has really just become our go-to spot for any specific team coverage. It's, in my opinion, the best writing and just general sports content out there, so we're thrilled to have Brody. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us today, Brody, and how's everything going, man? Ah, things are going pretty well. I mean, <laughs> relatively yeah. speaking these days, but yeah, no, things are uh, very good. Uh, thanks for having me, man. Absolutely, man. And the draft is fast approaching. So we've got kind of two main goals for this. And the first is just going to be previewing the immense talent that's going to be leaving LSU for the draft this year. And obviously the number one overall pick is going to be in discussion there. But then also another person leaving LSU this year, but not on the field. That's Joe Brady. He's the new Panthers offensive coordinator. Uh, We truly think he could be that next type of McVay wonderkin. So we're also going to talk about him, you know, what he brought to the table with LSU exploding last year, and then how we see everything fitting in for Carolina, but we'll just start right dive in at, with those draft, draft prospects and look right at the top of the draft here. We got Joe Burrow, kind of a unanimous number one selection on all draft boards, and it's really just a matter of if, I mean, when and not if he's going to be that first name called. So entering last year, though, he really wasn't in too many top 10 or even top 20 quarterback prospect lists. So before we dig into that evolution and what kind of spiked for him, what do you see the Cincinnati Bengals, unless they trade that pick away, getting in Joe Burrow? Yeah, I mean, the the place I always start with Joe Burrow is just to say that Joe Burrow is just a a different kind of dude. And that's really, I mean, that's how his best Mm -hmm. friends have described him. He's just a, a weird, and I mean that in a good way, a weird, just kind of so just kind of lives in his own world kind of person he has weird interests he he just kind of lives on his own island and it's just his only things he really cares about are football and that's and that's about it i mean you know he he everyone loved him on the team everyone followed him but he's a guy who like not that many guys have ever been to his apartment he doesn't really go out much or anything like that he just lives football so that kind of will explain our next question which we'll get to later but just kind of when you look at how this all turned around you have to start with he is just a hyper competitive hyper focused person who is one of the most competitive and i can't exaggerate this enough the most competitive human being i think i've ever met in my entire life and almost at a that's almost almost unhealthy way i mean that again in a good way but yes when what they're getting in him is a guy who has all those traits a guy who is one of the faster processors of information that you're going to find and i think that's what his everyone always asks like well what does joe burrow do great and i always say i mean i think you know people will point to his ability to make plays you know make broken plays or people will point to his accuracy things like that and i just start with his ability to process information he is a a brilliant and that's why him and joe brady were such a great match which we'll also get to is that he's so great at reading a defense knowing what he's looking for knowing, knowing how to see what's happening and then make a, a decision in a split second that's exactly what needs to be the right call and and the line he always uses no matter what a defense gives me they're wrong you know whatever whatever they try they're wrong because that's kind of how him and that offense were built so i think that's what he's great at he's great accuracy and he's a guy who 
yeah, he just kind of has that, I hate talking like this, but he has that kind of it factor that will just make things happen. You know, he's one of the strongest guys on the team. He's one of the best athletes on the team. He's obviously a great passer. And yeah, you're going to find guys with better arm strength. But I think you would probably agree that I just think that's an overrated strength in modern football these days. I mean, obviously you need some zip on it. But yeah, I think it's more about accuracy and processing ability. And that's what, long answer, that's what I think the Bengals are getting. I think it's, I mean, growing up as a New England fan and just seeing Tom Brady over these last few years, I think highlighting the cerebral na- nature, the competitiveness, the ability to read defenses and always pick out their weakness and, and how you can attack them is far more important. I mean, obviously the guy can make all the throws, but to have that nature is is generally what does separate the, the, um, the even the greats to the, the elite level. So maybe he does have that if that's the case with that cerebral nature. But how did he jump so much from this junior to senior season going from a maybe top 15 top 20 quarterback prospect to now the no-brainer elite like number one pick you'd be an idiot to not take him there what kind of transformed him this year do you think yeah and I think it's a, it's one of the more fascinating things okay I, I always start with this I think you have to start with the fact that he entered LSU and I believe he didn't come to LSU until June or July before the season. So he had almost no time before that 2018 season. He didn't really know his receivers. The offense was a brand new offense coming in that was kind of messy to begin with. So he didn't really have that that connection. It was kind of brand new to him. Then you go to the offense, which I think can't be understated. I think it was a mess of an offense. Uh, I mean, I, I, I'm somebody who's a Steve Ensminger defender, and, and we'll talk about him. And I think he's a good he's a good play caller, all these things. But I think that was a scheme that was just kind of getting thrown together. They were trying to go spread and modern, but they didn't quite know how to do it yet. So the offense just didn't quite work. They were doing a lot of seven, eight-man protections really often, which just doesn't work. And then so all of a sudden, you know, he had, he had an offensive line that was second or third worst in the SEC. I mean, it was a disaster of an offensive line in 2018. And then and then you're running this offense that's pretty much only sending one or two receivers out. So the, so both, he doesn't have much time in the pocket, even with these big protections. He has almost no one to throw to, so they're easily covered. It was just kind of a mess, and so it made him look pretty bad, and he was put in all these bad situations where you know it looked like he couldn't handle pressure, which, don't get me wrong, that's something he improved. But he had all these things because it if anything, I always look back on that season and people point out how how kind of bad he was. And I say he actually, if you watch those games closely, he was the reason LSU went 10-3, and three, won a Fiesta Bowl, finished top 10 because he just managed those games so well with given so little. And then you go to, I think so, then you have that first full off season. You actually have the time to... And he and he's a grad student, right? And he, he's just taking online classes. I mean, he's he'll be the first to admit it. He doesn't really worry about school much anymore. So he just pretty much spent his entire life working with Joe Brady and Steve Ensminger at just ridiculous rates. I mean, they would just sit together forever. And they, he was basically the third offensive coordinator. They they wouldn't put anything in the playbook until unless he liked it or he agreed with it. And then and then pretty much they would they would build this together. And then Burrow would be the guy and who. He organized all these big players-only workouts and practices and all that and basically would be the guy who was almost like the, the extra coach who would teach them in the players-only workouts how to run this offense. And and then you add in on top of that, yeah, those workouts, which you can't understate because right. anyone who watched those games, I mean, as much as you want to talk about how good Burrow is, the timing that him and the receivers had was everything. I mean, they were they 100% do what they were doing at all times. And that sounds so obvious, but it's such an underrated and huge part of this process. So he put ridiculous amounts of time in th- with those receivers to build that timing. And then the last thing Jimmy Burrow, his father, will tell you is it's kind of, it's kind of an overly simple thing, but it's true, is that in 2018, Joe Burrow hadn't played 
really played quarterback at a real level in four years. I mean, you know, since high school. So, and, and now he's going into SEC West football and kind of thrown into the fire. So I think that was a huge part of just kind of, he had to learn how to play quarterback at this level. And then he had a year of it. Then he, then he had the time. Then the scheme came with Joe Brady, which again, as I was saying, is a huge part of this and all. And then, I know Burrow put crazy hours into his footwork because that was the biggest thing he saw that he kind of messed up in in 2018 was he used to have this amazing footwork and he did all that this work with these tech guys in California at uh, QB3D and 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 then that you know he kind of got away from that so he fixed his footwork and it just kind of was this perfect storm and that's a really long answer I apologize no I I I, love all the details man keep it going this is fantastic (laughs) stuff so yeah I think that's kind of how he made this leap is that it was it was just a combination of all those factors and then him putting in just an absurd amount of time. Absolutely. And this is kind of a little bit off script here, but with the risk of at least losing this offseason and potentially some of the, the 2020, if not, hopefully not, but maybe all of the professional season next year with everything that's going on in the world right now, you mentioned that building the timing, building the rapport and kind of nailing that all down. Are you worried that his transition to the NFL might not be quite as smooth because of all these external circumstances, not having that time to really work with A.J. Green and Tyler Boyd, assuming, again, he goes to the Bengals, maybe not having the time with the coordinators? Do you think that could significantly hurt his progress, at least a little bit? What do you, what do you think that might impact have uh, on Joe Burrow here this year? No, I think it's a great point. I don't think I think it would be naive to think it wouldn't. I mean, yeah. again, like and you have to view it in two different ways, right? In one sense, you have to view it as everybody in the country is dealing with the same problem, so it's not necessarily going to be him more, but but no other first overall pick quarterback, which we all know has the most pressure out of anyone. We're going to be watching every pass he throws, every game he plays, you know, and scrutinize it. So for him to be the the one quarterback ever to have this bizarre offseason at first overall and to be to be able to not seamlessly go in, yeah, I think it would be naive to think it wouldn't be a, a huge part of this. Yeah, absolutely. In, in terms of the next offensive player, we're probably going to hear from LSU get their name called. That's going to be wide receiver Justin Jefferson, most likely. He finds himself in nearly every top five list of any kind of respectable person. I know Dane Brugler for The Athletic, the guy that we lean on the most for our pre-draft coverage, has him clocking at number four on his list. Uh, what do you see Jefferson bringing to the table, and, and what do you consider kind of his ideal landing spot in the NFL level? Yeah, I mean, so he's a guy who it's funny because obviously he had 111 catches this past season as kind of a true slot receiver, and he thrived. And I think that's the best role for him. I'm not, I'm not arguing that. I think that's, I think that's where he'll thrive in the NFL. He's an elite route runner. I think, you know, I think the thing that you know, I remember Jerry Sullivan, the old NFL coach who worked with LSU for a while. The thing he always talked about was. He's not necessarily like a burner fast, even though he had a pretty good 40, so I think that puts some doubts at ease. But the thing about him is he gets to full speed by the third step, and I think that's mm-hmm. what Jerry Sullivan always talks about, which is such a big thing with receivers, of course. And it kind of goes back to the arm strength thing, right? As much as we talk about you want a big arm and you much as we talk about speed, I think sometimes accelerating quickly it might be more important for a receiver than speed sometimes. But anyway, I, I so I think he's obviously good at that. But it's also worth remembering in 2018, he was the number one receiver by far, and he played more of that outside number one target, you know, big play guy. So mm-hmm. I, I just think that's worth mentioning his versatility is that he was a guy who was double covered almost every game in 2018 and got all the targets. And I think I want to say he had 
two he had two and a half times as many targets as the next guy. So yeah. I mean, which also shows you how much of a mess that 2018 offense was. But still, yeah. So I think that's kind of what I'd say about Jefferson is that he's more versatile than I think he gets credit for. I think the Oklahoma game against LSU shows that 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 was the one game where that he had, I think 250 yards and like 200 and a half, and he he was showing that he could be that deep threat and all those things. So I think he's a really He's a really tough player. He's actually a better blocker than you would think for somebody who looks kind of slight. I mean, he's actually a really good blocker. So when you but when you talk about fit, I think the best landing spot. I don't I don't know if there's any specific teams I'll mention or anything like that, but I just can't help but think he's a guy who can be a security blanket for a quarterback, right? He's yeah. a guy who can, who can just he's there, you can be your most trusted guy on the field that hey, even if it's just that eight-yard gain, you know you can trust him. He's not afraid to take a hit in the middle. He's got really good hands. He's a great route runner, so you trust him. So, I mean, I don't know. I guess he could be used in a lot of ways. I'm sure it'd be great help for a rookie quarterback or something like that who needs someone they can just trust. But at the same time, you see a lot of things of like linking him to the Saints, for example. And like, Can you imagine with a Mike Thomas on the outside or wherever they line him up, having, you know, Brees having one more sure thing target? I think, it, I think him going to a team that's already established – I think he would thrive there because he's pretty pro-ready. I'm hoping that's after everything you described there. I'm hoping it's New England again as a Patriots fan just because we have a pretty <laughs> lack of uh, receiving weaponry there. And then you move them all over the he'd place. Be great there, yeah. yeah, he'd have a field day with his versatility, the slot uh, ability there. I, I hope it's us. But those are often the rookies, especially at wide receiver, you see translate faster is those high possession, you know, security type blanket guys. So, you know, right away, obviously we can't really project his fantasy upside until we know where he's going, but that skill set often plays into the rookies that break out much sooner than later. So I'm hoping that that's the case for Jefferson. He lands in the right spot. Um, an- another very intriguing weapon you guys have, despite a, an underwhelming combine, but uh, Clyde Ed- Edwards Hilaire there back on uh, the backfield racked up, you know, 1,867 yards, uh, total yards, that is 17 TDs, 55 receptions, so truly a, a major threat in the pass game. Some consider him the best receiving back of this class. Uh, a lot are concerned, as I mentioned, that underwhelming combine, the 4-6-40. Should they be? And, and do you see this guy being a true workhorse like he was at LSU at the NFL level too? It's kind of funny as I'm looking at this list. The, the three guys we were talking about first are are all guys that actually were complete surprises. It's funny. Neither, none of these guys were five-star prospects. Jefferson was a two-star who was the last signee of his class and was literally just thrown in at the last second. And Edward Tiller was just kind of an average three-star. And I say that just to say that going into the 2019 season – I'll admit him. Writers like myself are like, "There's yeah, he'll be the opening day starter, but there's no way he's going to be the guy all year. Mm-hmm. One of the freshmen's going to become the main guy." You know, they just didn't think much of him. But I remember talking to a recruit, one of my good friends, who's a recruiting expert. You know, knows recruiting down here as well as anybody, and he's like. Don't be fooled. He's actually, like in our testing numbers and our athleticism stuff, he's off the charts in testing. Mm-hmm. So he's he, in, So I'd say that to say the 40-yard dash and the 4.640, that's – I mean, sure. I mean, you're a running back. That's important. I, I think that's that's a huge thing. But I look at the grand scheme of things with the, with an athlete, and he's a really explosive. He's really agile. He's really quick, and all these things. And he's a smart decision maker. And I just don't know if you know. Yeah, he's not going to be Chris Johnson running a four two and breaking an eighty yard run. No, I mean, yeah. If he, I'm sure an NFL player will catch him on the uh, from behind if he breaks a big run or something. But I think with him, I think he is so versatile. He's so smart. <clears throat> And he, he can be that guy who, I mean, I think the thing you have to look at most with him is early in the season, there was this fascinating stat that LSU was last or second last in the SEC in yards before contact. The offensive line was not really opening holes for the running backs, anything like that. But 
Clyde Hilaire had the number one or two success rate in, in SEC, and he also had the I think he was number he was by far number one in yards after contact, which is all to say he was put in brutal situations early in the season, and he just made everybody miss. <laughs> it is almost ridiculous. You watch and those are most of the highlights you're going to see when you look at his tape. Is just. There's two guys waiting for him at the line of scrimmage, and he can just spin out of it and whatnot. And then you add his ability as a receiver, who, much like McCaffrey, I mean, they used him a lot like in, just in the slot, for example, or just used him as a receiver. He's a good blocker and all those things. So, I mean, yeah, do I think he'll ever be a 250-carry-a-year guy? No, but, yeah, like the, the modern workhorse is just different. And that's why, I mean, your question's smart, is that, yeah, I think he can be a guy who can be – Maybe not the main running back in terms of carries, but can be a key contributor full time. And and all three of these guys we're talking about are also three of the highest character guys on the team. If you talk to anybody yeah. in that program, so it's kind of a meandering response this time. But yeah, I mean, I think he can be a main guy because he's such a good athlete. He knows the game. He's really smart. And he makes he has that great processing ability to know exactly what move to make in real time to make the move. Absolutely, and as you continue and continue to talk about him, the the guy that I keep thinking of, I hate to keep bringing it back to New England because of my experience. I love but, it, uh, James White. You know, with the Patriots, yeah. it sounds a lot like that. And and the Bucks, where Brady obviously is now located, they don't really have that clear cut, especially the pass catching role. But if if you know Hilaire is that instinctive and great after contact, great in the receiving game, and and you can move them all over, man, I'd love to see him land with you know Brady in Tampa Bay and I feel like that's just the exact type of player Brady loves and that has become Absolutely. such a staple of the New England offense uh, I'm really hoping that that would be a perfect landing spot maybe there in round two um that that'd be awesome do you think him, him and Brady could do some damage together I absolutely think that'd be yeah. a great fit because, yeah, you know, I said with Jefferson, I imagine like I imagine Jefferson will be theoretically fine wherever he goes. I kind of yeah. think Edwards Hilaire is a guy who needs to go to a place that actually knows how to use him. You know, I mean, yeah. if he goes to some not very good team who's asking him to be their main guy and all that, I, I just don't like, you know, some traditional back. I imagine his career will probably plateau and stagnate. But if he goes to a, you know, play with a Brady or you know, obviously Carolina doesn't need him, but a Carolina would come to mind just because obviously they know how to use him. Or, yeah. or you know, I, I tend to go with the Saints for a lot of these examples, but I think I just do that because maybe nobody's better than the Saints at just knowing how to use people and use people intelligently. Right. So I think I think he's a guy who probably needs to go to a place that just knows how to use him. Absolutely not. Sounds perfect. The last guy on our list too, and obviously there's infinite more talent there at LSU, but as far as I know, at least the last draft eligible player this year would be Thaddeus Moss. And he was, of course, overshadowed by the monstrous numbers that all those wide receivers put up. He's still set, as as far as I know, at least the LSU single season school record for catches and receiving yards by a tight end. Do you think he could make an NFL impact, Randy Moss's son here? Well, I mean, my short answer would be yes, but then now you you get a little, it started to look like a few months ago before the combine he could have been, you know, around three, round four guy or something, and then all of a sudden it looks like at the combine it showed up that he's gonna have to get another surgery done on his foot, which yeah. that starts getting worrisome because he missed obviously he redshirted the twenty twenty eight seventeen season then was supposed to be the starting tight end in 2018, or at least the number two tight end, and had foot surgery. That was supposed to be a routine surgery. That got messed up in surgery and basically had to get another surgery at the end of the season, missed the entire year with that weird foot injury that no one knows exactly what happened. And now to know that he has to get another foot surgery, from what I understand, I think that's a big reason he's fallen really hard on, really far on boards because you'd have to you know, be, be confident in the medical there. But, so, but if we're talking just football, I mean, yeah, I think he'd be – I don't think he'd ever be some Pro Bowl star type tight end, but I think he'd be a just really, really reliable tight end in the NFL for a long time because 
his reputation when he came in for as a transfer from NC State was he was just a really good receiver, right? You think Randy Moss's son, you see some of his catches at NC State, and it's like, all right, this is a, a vertical threat tight end, which is what he is, but he blew everyone at LSU away. And again, almost everyone on this list has been a surprise, which is kind of funny that I mean, he became one of the best, blo- probably the best blocking tight end I saw in the SEC mm-hmm. off the top of my head. I mean, he was a physical, go back to the Auburn game, which is the mm-hmm. best defensive line in football. And, and he was going up against like Marlon Davidson and some of these guys and just flat out like beating them and not beating them, but holding his own against defensive linemen and one-on-ones. I mean, that was kind of a game I always point to. I mean, he plays with a, a toughness and then, he's it's funny also because edwards i always say burrow doesn't have many you know tight friends on the team he's not like social or anything like that but edwards and larry moss were his two best friends and and he had a great rapport with burrow and smart receiver can play on the far they use him on the far outside a lot in brady's system they used him you know obviously it's just a true tight end in that system so i think he's a guy who i mean there's not too much to say but i think if he's healthy he'll just be a really trustworthy solid tight end for a long time uh, hopefully he moves up with Burrow. They have a, a clear need there at Cincinnati at tight end for sure. Eifert got away this offseason, so that that would be an interesting fit uh, if he's going to actually take off, especially in year one, to have that, that rapport already down. Could be an interesting fit for sure. Is there any other – was I missing anyone on this list? Is there any other draft-eligible, at least <laughs> offensive project uh, prospects that LSU's rolling out this year, or should we move on to Joe Brady? I believe offensively, I think that's all. Well, I guess there's Lloyd Cushenberry and Damian Lewis, the offensive lineman, who I think Lloyd Cushenberry is probably going to be the first or second center taken. But, yeah, not too much to say about those guys. Absolutely. All righty. So we'll move on to the uh, the next man of the hour. That's that's Joe Brady here. Uh, and even though he, he wasn't on the field, I feel like him departing, that impact is going to be you know as hard, maybe not as Burrow, but, but really ultimately a pretty big innovator to this offense. He came in as the passing game coordinator, even though he wasn't technically the, the OC here. And in points per game, they leaped from 69th in 2018 to first in 20, I mean, 2018 to first in 2019. Passing wise, they go from 65th in the nation to second. So, I mean, obviously it's not all part of Brady. What other factors, before we go into him, what else could have contributed to this? And then what else, what role did Brady actually play in it too, do you think? Yeah, so I think, you know, Steve Ensminger, like I said, he's a good play caller, all those things. He's, he's They trust him as an offensive coordinator in general. And 2018 was supposed to be the year they made this leap toward the spread. They were going to, you know, Ojan said they were finally going to get to 50-50 because obviously LSU has been historically a very Stone Age style run game. They were going to get to 50-50 finally. They were going to spread the ball out more. They were going to use RPOs and all these things. And they said they were going to do it. And, they, and I mean, if you look at what they did, I guess they did do it more. But they didn't really know how to do it. I mean, you know, so they it, it was just a flawed kind of messy offense. They did so many of these seven, eight man protections. And, and when you get in a game, Steve Ensemeyer can call it as well as anything. But the scheme just wasn't there. So in come Joe Brady, who is this guy who was literally just a se- assistant to an assistant with the Saints and came on a visit to, to Baton Rouge with, with Pete Carmichael, the offensive coordinator of the Saints, to teach them in the summer of 2018 before the season. He came in to teach them about about some of these, you know, spread passing concepts they were doing and the screen game and all these things. And, you know, Carmichael obviously was the main guy, but Brady was the one who kind of just showed a lot of them the nitty-gritty and really went up on a board. And I, I remember talking to so many people who were in that room and all of them were just like, this guy is only, I think he was 28 at the time. He was just like, this guy is just sharp. So Ogeron, Ed Ogeron just always remembered that and, and it kind of stuck with them. So when it came time to replace their new, their higher new passing game coordinator, they just couldn't get out of their mind this guy Joe Brady and how sharp he was and how bright he was. So they bring him in and basically 
the way I always put it is, okay, so yeah, Steve Enzimino had a call game, but he needed to learn the scheme. And Joe Brady came in with his scheme that, you know, and we'll get to a lot of the philosophy and all that later. But, yeah. I mean, he came in with his mixture of the Joe Moorhead's, you know, RPO-style offense and, the, and a long history of Sean Payton's Saints offense. And he came in, basically brought his his playbook, I'd call it, and basically taught it to Steve Ensminger and taught him, you know, updated him on how football, you know, I hate to say this, but how football works now and, and kind of <laughs> updated him on, on all these schematic things and what they wanted to do and putting the playmakers in space and all these things. And then they, and Steve Ens, and he had to learn from Steve Ensminger, you know, how to be a coach how to be an oc how to call a game all these things and i think it was kind of a perfect marriage in that sense so that's how that came together and then you have and then i always say it was a perfect storm though because this wouldn't work if burrow didn't just put it all together like he did right and it wouldn't work by any means if that receiving core jamar chase and terrace marshall and obviously jefferson already and and edwards alaire and all those offensive pieces and moss if they didn't break out like they did this also wouldn't work out like it did and then you had the offensive line who like i said was one of the worst in all of college football well they actually stepped up quite a bit and won the joe moore award for best offensive line in the country in 2019 so it was all this kind of perfect storm of just kind of everything coming together at the exact right time that you might never see again in terms of just things clicking like that that quickly so i think that's kind of all to answer your question those are all the actors before brady that contributed to it but when you talk about the role he played i mean he and Ensminger were pretty much co-OCs. We all obviously know that. And they made the game plan together. Ensminger called the majority of plays technically and whatnot. And a lot of times Brady would throw a suggestion and Ensminger would either, you know, call that play or not call it. Or or a lot of the times in certain games he'd be like, hey, what are you thinking here? Because Brady always has a play ready to go in his mind. And then Ensminger's, you know, real responsibilities on top of just, you know, he was the guy who, after a drive, he was the one on the phone with Joe Burrow at the after the drive, you know, on the, uh, to to talk about what they saw, what they were looking at, and that he was the one who was doing that, and he would relay that to Ensminger, who was working on the next drive already. Or uh, one of Brady's roles was he called third down plays in the red zone. I think that's something that Ensminger knew that wasn't a strength of his. So. Brady was the guy who called all the third down plays and the red zone offense went from the worst in the SEC off the top of my head to probably the best in college football. Right. And that was Brady called all those, those red zone plays. So those were a lot of his roles. And then you obviously add in the fact that he was the receivers coach. And I know we're going to talk about the receiver breakout later, but I mean, (laughs) the things he did with those receivers also can't be understated. Absolutely. And and you talked about how a lot of his biggest impact, though, was laying in you know, as good as Inzminger is as a play caller, didn't have exactly the right system or philosophy, the, the groundwork necessarily to call plays from. And that seems to be one of, if not Brady's biggest contribution, is bringing in a new kind of philosophy, a new style of play. Uh, and you started to hint at some of those staples, but do you mind digging in a little bit more? What are some of the things that we can expect to see out of a Joe Brady offense? Yeah, and it's funny because... You know, you know, say you asked me like a, I don't know, a Cliff Kingsbury offense, you know, you'd be like, all right, you talk about the air raid and all these principles and all these things or, or there's tons of other examples I can come up with. But with Joe Brady, it's not like there's some like gimmicky thing. It's not like there's some like thing that's like, this is his style. I don't think that's true. I think he, I think what benefits him is that he is well-versed in several different of, I mean, think about it, 29 years old, he was already like a top protege of two of the top offensive minds in football. And because of that, he was able to have the Joe Moorhead college style RPO, really modern, you know, founders of that kind of offense. He had that. And he was he was Moorhead's number two at Penn State. I mean, Moorhead loves him, raves about him. Then you have 
you know, with the Saints, and that's the best offense in the NFL probably from a consistency and productivity point of view for the last 15 years. So, you know, you have those two kind of core things, and I think what came out of that is, I mean, his main philosophy is really simple. It's just who are the best players, you know, what, where's the talent on your team, and how can I maximize it most? And kind of the catchphrase is just, you know, put playmakers in put the ball in playmakers' hands in space. That's all it is. It's really that simple. It's just how can you put a playmaker in space and let them win one-on-one situations? That's really all it is. So, yeah, I mean, obviously you're going to see them go four or five wide. You're going to see them be a spread-style offense, but it's a lot of West Coast principles there. I think it's a lot of, you know, you're going to see – I mean, it's it's a lot of simplicity in the sense that, I mean, one of the things that Sean Payton will talk about at length is – you know, in a passing play, it's it's you need the three levels of the passing game, right? You need the one guy probably running a shallower route and one guy to run the intermediate route, another guy to run deep route. So it, it's stretching the defense, right? So they can't cover all these guys easily. So, I mean, <laughs> it's just uh, – I think those are the things you point to, I think, when you're talking about his philosophy is it's just about – so he's going to adjust. He's going to – you know, there's one thing he did with the receivers was he made them learn all three receiver spots. He didn't let anybody just kind of learn – one spot you know and specialize in it so that you can move guys around and, be, and it's all about finding mismatches right so the oklahoma game for example they, they could tell that they had a mismatch with justin jefferson so all of a sudden it became kind of a deep shot to jefferson kind of game they kept winning those one-on-ones or there might be a game where all right it's jamar chase and, and you know you're going to put jamar chase in certain situations uh running you know crossing routes and they couldn't catch up with him on those or things like that so or, you know, uh, I always point to the Auburn game as one of the best examples because the Auburn game, I mean, Auburn was probably the best defense LSU faced. And, and that defensive line basically ran like a 3-1-7 defense. It was crazy. And they got away with it because their defensive line's so good. And they, Burrow kind of was, he didn't play poorly that game, but it was his least explosive game. Well, in the second half, they kind of just changed their offense and kind of started just pounding the ball and running duo plays and kind of Edwards Lair cutting to the weak side as much as they could away from the play. And and that's how they won that game was kind of pounding the rock on the ground. So all this is to say is it, it was always funny. You'd hear we, every every week it was like this routine, right? The the reporters would talk to the opposing coach, and it would be you know Kirby Smart or Nick Saban, all these genius coaches, defensive coaches, and and they, they'd ask him about Joe Brady, this rising star, and they'd all be like, guys, what he's doing isn't that complicated. He's not doing anything that's like revolutionary or genius. He's just really smart about it, and mm-hmm. he, and you know he just he knows how to run it simply. He makes it. I know I talk to people at LSU. He made it really really simple for his guys. So. I mean, I mean, the last thing I'll say is just Brady looks at all as a puzzle. You know, that's that's the thing that he gets most into is he loves looking at an offensive versus defense battle as a puzzle. And where can you find, you know, where can you put these puzzle pieces together? That's the thing he gets most into. So there's no one thing he believes. He's just going to make those puzzle pieces work based on his talent. I think that makes a perfect segue then to start talking about some of these puzzle pieces. And I know your expertise is obviously with LSU and their talent, but you know football. You've watched plenty of football, and I'm sure you're aware of some of the players we'll discuss. And if there's any gaps, I can you know do my best to try to fill any of those in too. Um, starting right there, the probably the most important puzzle piece of any offense is the is the quarterback, right? And they let go Cam Newton, a Pro Bowler. Uh, obviously, you know the their last decade the face of the franchise and go and sign Teddy Bridgewater mostly a career backup at this point and give him a a very solid money contract so it was clear Brady had this piece of his puzzle in mind this engineer behind it all why do you think he targeted Bridgewater so aggressively and and how do you see Brady kind of helping him improve at the pro level 
Yeah, I remember when you know Brady first got hired. I'd, I'd ask people around, you know, like about this guy. You know, what was his? What did he do with the Saints? All these things. And and one thing that always you know people mentioned was when when the Saints traded for Teddy Bridgewater back in 2018. Brady was actually the guy who Sean Payton said, "All right, your job is to get Bridgewater caught up. You're the guy who's like just teach him our offense, work with him every day. Your job is to be the guy who makes him ready to actually play." Which is funny now that obviously he's he's his guy. And so I think. One, you have familiarity. That's obvious, right? Then you go with culture because I think, you know, it seems like everything I've heard about what Matt Rule's trying to do there, what Brady's trying to do there, all that, is they're trying to really change the culture. And Matt Rule's one of the best in, in, in football about that. I really believe that. So, and I think Teddy Bridgewater, I mean, I'm pretty obviously I'm familiar with the Saints. Teddy Bridgewater is one of the most beloved people in New Orleans in the Saints locker room. I mean, they, they really love that guy. So I think he's huge from that point of view. And then, yeah, I like that, you know, and use the term engineer in your question to me that you wrote to me is that I think that's the the word to use for it. I mean, he, it's not like he's going to be some big arm, you know, huge play guy. But Joe Brady's offense, in my opinion, is about just, you know, putting the right pieces in space and then distributing it to those pieces in space, right? And it's about executing what a defense sees and all that. And Bridgewater's not going to make some crazy throws that often, but he knows how to distribute, right? He knows how to put the ball in his playmaker's hands, execute simple things, and just... I think the term game manager is kind of a... It gets used as a as a slur of sorts, right. but I look at the term game manager as you know how to distribute the ball to where it's supposed to go based on your offense. So, yeah, I think I think he'll be perfect for that because especially considering the pieces the Panthers have and so many elite athletes and guys who can make plays with the ball in their hand, I think I think what makes Bridgewater a great fit is that he won't try to be some superstar, right? He's not going to try to make you know play outside of the offense or you know break these big plays. He's just going to execute the offense and let the the Panthers great skill players make those plays and i think you know with that is a lot of people look at bridgewater and they they think oh there's not a ton of upside he just you know he's been so conservative and at this point in fantasy you know why bother with someone we know what he is but even if he is just doing this simple task and it doesn't seem all that sexy is just distributing the ball to these guys there's still in my opinion at least and I, i'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of statistical upside even if he's not doing a whole ton even if the the depth of the targets isn't all that that high Ultimately, I still think this guy could rack up 30-ish touchdowns or so just by getting it to his playmakers, and I think he's going to end up being one of the better fantasy quarterback values because of the scheme and how easy it can be for the quarterback to succeed in it. Do you think Bridgewater could have a, a pretty big statistical season in this offense? Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more with what you said. I mean, there's nothing more sexy than you know consistency to me <laughs> you know like like i mean you're going to produce if you're consistent and, and as much as you know look like Jameis winston's a great example of Jameis winston can make plays that make you think he's the best quarterback one of the best quarterbacks in the nfl at certain days and then but he's also going to make some plays that make you want to cut him on the spot and i think i just, I just don't think bridgewater's that guy so i mean yeah and, and you know you talk about fantasy for example and i think that's yeah, I don't know about you, but when I look at fantasy, I actually would rather have 16-week consistency than I would have, you know, highs and lows and breakouts and things like that. I think Teddy Bridgewater seems like somebody you can pretty consistently bet will throw for about 250 yards a game. Maybe, yeah, maybe two touchdowns a game. He probably won't turn the ball over. I mean, you could look at his stint with uh, when he filled in for Drew Brees this year. He did not turn the ball over at all. So, if I, I mean, I could be wrong about that. But, yeah, I think I think he could be he could make pretty big numbers, I imagine. And, and as much as we talk about it, he's not sexy, he's not a big play guy, all those things, I mean, he's still an NFL quarterback. You know, he's still a first-round pick. He can make a 50-yard throw down field if a guy's there, you know. 
yeah, he might not be throwing guys open like a Patrick Mahomes or anything like that, but he's still an NFL quarterback. He's not yeah. throwing 10 yards. He's not Sam Bradford with the Eagles that one year where his average throw was like six yards. You know, it's still more than that. Right. And I think uh, Pro Football Focus, they had a great article on him where so many are he's so conservative, he doesn't throw the ball downfield. It wasn't that he can't throw the ball downfield. In fact, his his percentage was significantly higher on anticipation downfield throws, more so, you know, the, the posts and th- those type of routes rather than just the lob it up and let your guy go make a play. He, t- he typically missed on those just straight up verticals. But when there was a destination in mind, there were plenty of times where he was delivering the mail too. And I imagine Joe Brady, uh, you watch his scheme. It's, it's certainly a lot more of a, of a, anticipation and a point of the throw rather than just lob it up and let's see who comes down with it. So I, th- I think he could. Absolutely. I think there's a little bit more appeal there. The last question on Bridgewater I had was, uh, he's not necess- he's certainly not a Lamar Jackson or anything of that nature in terms of mobility, but do you think he'll be used in that RPO? You mentioned Moorhead and that background. Is that something Brady's going to try to bring to the NFL? Do you think it's just more of a college thing that is going to be removed? Because that obviously creates, if there's rushing upside to your quarterback, in fantasy that's just a whole new level of ceiling when you have that do you see any of that with Bridgewater or do you think that's going to be kind of scrapped at the NFL level no I think you'll definitely see some of that I mean yeah Mm -hmm. I I think I think sometimes I mean hey maybe I'm naive on this but I think sometimes like being a a runner is a little overstated with an RPO sometimes because it's more about the threat right and it's more about reading it I mean Nick Foles I think a huge reason they won that the Eagles won that Super Bowl was was Frank Reich and 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 Doug Peterson running RPOs I mean that was a huge part of that Super Bowl run and Nick Foles is not a a runner or anything like that so yeah I would imagine they use him I mean he's not the runner Joe Burrow is by any means but just in terms of physicality and being able to take hits and all that but but yeah, I mean, I, I imagine they'll use him in an almost similar way to Joe Burrow, just in the sense that they did not really ever, you know, I'd say 10 out of the 15 games that season, they really didn't make Joe Burrow run. They never designed their offense to be about him running. But there's going to be times when a defense starts giving you something where that's just the smartest play. And as long as you have a quarterback who's even vaguely a threat running, you can take advantage of that for 10-yard gains and whatnot. And and like you said, the RPOs and all those things. So, yeah, I imagine he'll just use it as one other tool in his arsenal. Well, I, do I think the offense will be built around RPOs? No, but I think that will be a, a wrinkle in his offense depending on what a defense shows. Awesome. Thank you. For, uh, yeah, just even that much more upside for all those people thinking that Bridgewater can't be a top 10 quarterback in fantasy. I, there's just all these different layers to his game that I think Brady's really going to squeeze out that fantasy juice that doesn't seem too juicy at first. I, I'm I'm thrilled with Bridgewater this year, but somebody fantasy owners certainly are well aware of, and probably the second biggest piece to this puzzle is Christian McCaffrey. I mean, second most fantasy points of all time in a single season, third thousand yard rusher, thousand yard receiver in NFL history, breaks his own running back reception record with 116 this year leads the league in TDs and scrimmage yards by over 600 yards I mean this guy had a season for the ages no matter how you want to string it but ultimately like everyone's just like he has nowhere to go but down I'm seeing people say he shouldn't be number one just because you can't ever do that and now he has a different play caller is there any world though where Joe Brady somehow elevates McCaffrey how do you see him being used in this offense yeah, and I think I think everyone in football, if we're talking about things we're excited to see with Joe Brady, it's yeah, it's how does he use Christian McCaffrey because it seems like a fantastic marriage. And yeah, I'm not even gonna like speculate that's gonna be different from how they use him because I mean it seems like a lot of the principles Joe Brady uses with uh, Clyde Edwards Alaire, for example, are pretty similar to how they use for Christian McCaffrey. But yeah, I think sometimes 
we we think in a in, you know, for, in a fantasy point of view or in a football point of view that you know if, if more pieces and more distribution that means it's going to be bad for the the best player right but, but I, I also use this in the basketball sense that if you have four you know look at the Golden State Warriors in their prime you know if you have four great shooters it means everybody's getting better looks and it means everybody's more productive uh, it doesn't it, it's not a bad thing to dish the ball because it's going to make you better I, I look at you know what Joe Brady might do with this offense and I would think. Christian McCaffrey might theoretically touch the ball a little less, but I think he'll probably have more productive touches if the offense goes how we expect it. You know, I'm not, I don't want to sit here and act like it's a foregone conclusion that Joe Brady's going to succeed as OC or anything like that. But if the offense does what I think it can under him, then yeah, I think the offense will run smoother, and that will mean you know the passing game's looking better, and the the receivers are getting better looks, and all these things, and that. Yeah, McCaffrey might get less touches, but those touches might be better looks for bigger gains and be more productive. So, I mean, sure, yeah, if you have a year like that, yeah, we, we'd be dumb to think it isn't statistically, you know, analytically likely that he takes a step down just because that's how that works. But but I don't think there's no room to grow or anything like that because his Joe Brady's number one skill, if you ask me, is just the ability to put those puzzle pieces together, the ability to figure out somebody's greatest strength and how to use that against a defense's weakness. And I think he'll get creative with how to use McCaffrey's unbelievable strengths against a, a weakness of a defense. Absolutely. I think you highlighted too the biggest point I've made when anybody says, do I keep taking McCaffrey number one overall? He has to go backwards, right? Is sure, maybe the sheer number of touches goes down, but if this offense, which I believe was 20th in scoring last year, let's say Brady is the real deal. And again, we can't say foregone conclusion, but if you're trying to map out upside scenarios, let's say he does take this to a top seven or eight, maybe even top five level scoring offense. They say the weaponry is there, in my opinion, to get there. Then he already led the NFL with touchdowns last year, but let's say he gets another spike of five to even, you know, an LT style 30 touchdown season, something insane like that. Like it's, it could be within that realm of possibilities I saw you know Hilaire was definitely the guy at the goal line he doesn't seem to like to sub his backs out so I mean that that's how I see McCaffrey potentially even if he did, goes down just a little bit in the yardage and touch department if those touchdowns somehow still increase too it could it could be just a, yet another one of those cheat code style seasons so I, I'm with you there I love that take um for sure after that though we got we got a wide receiver core that's just loaded especially now um since they added Robbie Anderson. And I mean, there was no position that gained more from Brady, in my opinion, outside of Joe, obviously Joe Burrow. But besides him, the wide receivers, I kind of wrote a little blurb here about their stats. Not a single LSU wide receiver had 900 receiving yards the year before. Jefferson's 875, six TDs were the standout. And no one else had even 400 yards or three TDs. I think you said something about how Jefferson had like over half the targets of the team. And then the next year, Jefferson has 111, 15, 40, and 18. You got Jamar Chase coming in and even being better than that, 1780 and 20 TDs, which he just had 313 and three as a freshman and then why not just have 13 TDs for Terrence Marshall it just was insane the numbers this wide receiver unit put on especially considering they really didn't have a whole ton of production the year before so as a as a unit before we kind of break into the individuals why do you think they broke out so well under Joe Brady how do you kind of unlock this upside yeah, I think, you know, as much as people want to talk about Joe Burrow and all that, I mean, I think what he did with the receivers is the, his greatest achievement. And mm-hmm. there's so many things. Okay, so you start with the fact that he did this idea for this summer of 10,000 catches he did with the receivers. And every receiver basically had to catch 10,000 balls over the course of the offseason. And, you know, LSU, and this this isn't necessarily a Brady thing, but it's 
it's part of the puzzle is that the LSU sports science department, which is probably one of the top three in college football and in in college sports in the sports science department are usually ahead of the NFL in these things because they're more of a research thing. They're university, all these things. So the sports science department of LSU did this fantastic study on ocular dominance and how receivers, you know, how a receiver defensive back, how their eye, you know, certain they catch the ball better at certain angles because they see the ball better at certain angles and how certain eyes work better for certain routes. And they actually use that into their offense to kind of learn, you know, basically how to best utilize players and their strengths and their eyes and all these things. So when Brady got a hold of that data and information, he just started constructing all of these just ridiculous, weird, bizarre drills. Like there was one where they were wearing like Batman masks as they caught the ball. Or there was one where they'd have to like wear a mask and there was a sliding door and they couldn't see the ball and the sliding door would open and the ball would come and they'd have to catch it. I mean, they did some, or they had to like run routes through the little like un- like the little crouch shoot you know that you have to crouch the run through you would have to run routes through there all these just kind of things that they were all about putting players in position that are actually game like you know so it's not even though it doesn't sound game like but you know yeah. you don't run you don't run a route you don't catch a ball in a perfect vacuum you catch it in weird contested situations or your body's out of whack and all these things so he did so much just kind of creative work with them just to simply be better and i think he Deserves a lot of credit for that. Then you point to, you know, so then I think that was key for, and then you obviously Jamar Chase and Terrace Marshall were just elite talents anyway, but he got the most out of them. They definitely didn't in 2018. So I think they needed that marriage. Then you go to the scheme, finally learning how to put all these players in space and actually, you know, distribute the ball to these five offensive playmakers instead of just giving it the two, you know, and then actually spreading the defense out. That opened everything up for these receivers. And and obviously, I think Brady is is a piece and Burrow and these receivers all getting that great connection. But but yeah, I mean, I just think it's as simple as LSU has always had elite talent at skill positions. You know, it's one of the five top probably the five or 10 most just talented programs every year in college football. I mean, we've Odell Beckham, Jarvis Landry, Dwayne Bowe, you know, Michael Clayton, all these, I mean, it could go on forever, you know, uh, early Doucette, all these guys who are elite re- talent, but they just weren't very productive at LSU. And you're just like, what's LSU doing? And we obviously know all the stories about their scheme being outdated, but I think you have to, so I think what Brady did was just say, we have so much talent here. Put the ball in these playmakers' hands and just let them make plays. Put them in one-on-one situations and LSU should win that battle almost every time. And I think that's really it, is that he just isolated people and put them in positions and, and just let talented players make plays. So I think that's a, a big – all of those are you know pieces of the puzzle of why he was able to get so much out of this group. Absolutely. And and now you look at the trio he's going to be inheriting. And I mean, maybe this LSU talent is just as good, if not better, even at a professional level than what he has. But these guys are pretty explosive. And DJ Moore, Curtis Samuel, and now Robbie Anderson, who, who Rule goes out and gets after their past history at Temple together. Do you kind of, I don't know if you can draw any direct parallels or not, but do you see any similarities between this core and LSU's and how you kind of see them being deployed under Brady? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have the similarity of just, you know, guys like Moore and Samuel are just unbelievable athletes, right? And the things they can do are, you know, maybe a little similar to what a, what a Chase and Jefferson do, obviously. Well, obviously, they're at the NFL and producing, so they're probably better, but you get my point, you know, and the, the, in, in a relative sense. So, right. yeah, I think there's some similarities. Or even maybe you compare Robbie Anderson to, you know, just from a size and kind of possession ability to to maybe what a Terrace Marshall did or something like that. I mean, if you're looking for parallels like that. But yeah, I mean, I'm just fascinated to see what 
what he does with some of these guys. You know, I mean, DJ Moore, we all know, is one of the better up-and-coming receivers in football, and I just imagine he's going to put him in the position to just to break out. And Or a Curtis Samuel, who's a guy who's obviously so, you know, maybe I'm naive and maybe not watching closely enough, but, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, he's he's a guy who can play running back and receiver in a way. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I mean, he's I, I'm fascinated to see almost like the same way he can use a McCaffrey that he can kind of get the most out of a Curtis Samuel in that sense. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know if it's about parallels, right? It's just about how, what's your faith in him getting the most out of players and finding the best use for him. And, and that is what I always say is Brady's strength. So I'm sure he's going to get a lot out of him. I, I think especially with Samuel as a guy that just seems to be misused so far in his early career, just kind of almost more so like a deep decoy where he was you know top 10, I think, in the NFL in air yards targeted, and he just had the ball continue to be sailed over his head. But as you mentioned, and anybody that watched him play in college, I mean, he came out as a running back wide receiver hybrid, a Percy Harvin style player, and just has barely gotten any of these yak opportunities here. And I, I'm very excited. We all know DJ Moore can do it. He's already been used in that way, and I'm with you. I think he breaks out the most of these guys, but in terms of who might see their own personal gains, I think it's going to be Curtis Samuel, as you mentioned, has not been used as a running back nearly as much as his skills would allow, and if Brady's as good as molding to his talent and using these guys, and you bet speed and space over and over, that's a guy that if you can get him into space, I think we haven't seen even close to what his ceiling is. And yeah, Robbie Anderson, again, speed, like speed, speed, speed. So I think he's really going to have a field day with this core. I think Bridgewater is just going to distribute the way he needs to, and I don't. I see it working very well. One question I didn't have on script, and you, and you mentioned this though, it kind of prompted my thinking. Is this line went kind of from one of the worst to one of the best? Now I don't know if that was an injection of some new talent or if it was part of the scheme. But I've read a lot about Brady kind of minimizing the protections. You talked a lot about yep. seven and eight man protections, and then I think this year he went to five man. Like, how does that actually to the average fan? Like, it's less people blocking. It can't really help. But yeah. in your point of view, how does that? kind of help turn things around or could that a lot of people are worried about the Panthers offensive line being able to sustain this you know should they be what do you think happens when you, you switch those type of protections yeah I, and I, it's a great question because it's something Joe Brady actually has a strong belief in and I, I actually he once went on a rant to a question I asked of basically like everyone thinks that a seven eight man protection is better for an offensive line but all data will show you that actually pass protection numbers are infinitely worse with those protections because one, I mean, you can get to the nitty gritty and you know, a lot of the stuff will show you that it actually like doing those protections actually brings more bodies near the line of scrimmage. And that actually makes pass protection more confusing because then it's harder to dissect who's going where. And that's how a lot of those things happen. But I mean, the fundamental thing that Joe Brady believes is that a five man protection, sure. He'll use some you know, more. I think you, I even saw a touchdown in the Clemson game where he, he had a seven man one, but overall, I mean, that's his philosophy is and it's it's the idea that the more you're spreading the ball out and getting the ball out quicker, the more the less pressure you're putting on the offensive line. You know, when you when you put it like that, it all sounds so obvious and simple. But it's it's true because, I mean, as much as I said, the offensive line improved, it is kind of my my hot take that I don't think this was by any means the best offensive line in college football. I think it was pretty good, you know, probably in the 20s or something. But they, they looked really good because the, the scheme finally caught up and put them in better situations. So, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a firm belief of his is that if you're spreading the ball out, first off, you're putting less bodies in your line of scrimmage. Two, that means you're it's easier for your quarterback and a Bridgewater is perfect for this at getting the ball out quicker. So yeah, I think that's going to open everything up and it works. It works in the run game too. That's less bodies in the box, for example. And so, yeah, that's a, a long way of saying, yeah, I, that's a firm belief he has is that he believes five man protections are actually better pass protection than seven or eight. 
Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that point. I think I read your article on it, and that's kind of how we, we got to you. <laughs> is uh, I was reading that one. I just love like even getting down to the line level. So um, yeah, that that stuff's great too. And now the, the only last question I have here is is he's going to be the youngest play caller, Joe Brady, in the NFL? Like, do you think? He's up for that task. What do you think his long-term ceiling is? Is he going to be this next Sean McVay? Or what's your prediction for how Joe Brady does at the NFL level? Yeah, I mean, I know it was funny because it was always this fun game, right, of like everyone being like, does he want to be in college and all those things? And is he actually going to leave and all that? But, I mean, I remember when I was doing features on him before he even really started the job. And, I mean, you talk to his friends. You talk to everybody. They'll tell you. His goal his whole life has been to be an NFL head coach. That's his goal. And – and so, I mean, I think that is his ultimate goal, and that's what he's working toward. But I guess the realer question is, do we think he can, right? And right. I mean, I think he's that kind of smart, right? And, you know, McVeigh, the thing with him, I think McVeigh is as sharp and smart as anybody, and also he's just so good at the relationships part of it. I think that's what I think puts him ahead of his, his years is that he's so good at you know managing a locker room, working with guys, making guys actually want to play for a 31-year-old and all that. And I think Brady is that kind of sharp. He's that kind of smart. He is that kind of plan. I mean, I wrote a story, I think, last October or so that I mean, when he was a GA at Penn State, he was already building a playbook for when he was an offensive coordinator. Like, he had a playbook ready. And another GA buddy's like, I've never seen anybody do that in my life, like, even when they're just a position coach, let alone when they're, you know. So that's just kind of how he thinks is that he's thinking thinking that far ahead and he has a plan but yeah i mean i think he's he's a guy who people just flat out like being around he's a guy that's really easy to get along with his he he kind of acted like an older brother to a lot of the receivers and all in the players and whatnot so i'm um, very very interested to see how that works that works in the nfl because just a different dynamic but if you're just going from a does he have the mental you know aptitude i think that's probably his his, his upside is absolutely to be an elite head coach mm-hmm. one day but and I think he has the personality people like working for him. I mean, he, people like working above him. I mean, it's right. it's not common that a coach like Joe Moorhead will pick up the phone any second to be like, yeah, I want to rave to you about Joe Brady. He even said to me, he's like, anything for Joe Brady. You know, so <laughs> it's not common for – or I know, I know Sean Payton wasn't exactly psyched he left because he they didn't want to lose him. So I think when you have the respect of both Elder – or Steve Ensminger, right? They, they, Steve Ensminger put his ego aside to work with him. Right. So you look at – that, that says something that older, more experienced people respect him, right? That means something. Then you go to the fact that he relates really well to younger people. And I, and I, I, I could see, you know, he has the relationship abilities when you look at it that way to actually make that work, which is such a big part of that job. So <laughs> that might not have not even been what you're asking, but I, I, I do think he could be a head coach. I'm not going to say anybody's the next Sean McVay because that's a lot to ask, but mm-hmm. I think he can be a head coach. Absolutely not. I think that's fantastic. And I mean, we were excited entering this interview about Joe Brady. I already wrote a feature on him. And I think you always try in fantasy to unlock what factors drive upside. And I think coaching is one of the biggest things that gets overlooked in terms of players just spiking from one year to the next. You, you see in a whole offensive turnaround, again, 20th, the Panthers this year, if they just spike to the top five, what does that mean for all the skill players? Obviously, the stats are going to be there to support that if they do and if they don't. So I was already excited. You've got me even more hyped up on Joe Brady. Uh, I think he's going to be the real deal too, so I'm with you. Um, and man, this this was fantastic. You really you gave us tons of great in-depth answers to everything I asked. So thanks so much for the time today, Brody. Do you mind reminding our listeners where they can find you to interact? Absolutely. Follow me at Brody A. Miller on Twitter and then uh, subscribe to The Athletic. Read anything I write at theathletic.com. There's plenty of discounts and a 90-day free trial growing right now. So please sign up. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. Thanks again, man. Really appreciate the time. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, man. Take care. 
We used to have it all, but now's our curtain call. So hold for the applause. Oh, oh, oh. And wave out to the crowd and take our final bow. Oh, it's our time to go, but at least we stole the show. 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 Second effort, third effort, touchdown! Oh. That's pretty awesome. That's old-fashioned football right there, folks. <laughs>